0: Where, after all, do universal human rights begin? In small places, close to home, so close and so small that they cannot be seen on any maps of the world. Unless these rights have meaning there, they have little meaning anywhere. Without concerned citizen action to uphold them close to home, we shall look in vain for progress in the larger world. This is what Eleanor Roosevelt said. She played an instrumental role in drafting the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This declaration proclaimed to existence by the United Nations General Assembly in 1948 was built from the ashes of one of the most violent and turbulent periods of human history. The human rights enshrined in this proclamation, it was hoped, would take us into a new era where the fundamental rights of every individual are universally protected. what Eleanor said was, if we don't ensure these rights are respected at the local community level, we simply have no hope for the world. Sadly, those who are protecting and defending these rights The community leaders, the journalists, the lawyers who peacefully work for the promotion of civil and political rights, such as the freedom of expression, protection of the environment, gender equality, and women's rights are in great danger. They live under the constant threat of abuse, violence, and even murder. According to frontline defenders last year, more than 300 human rights defenders in 31 countries were killed. Two thirds of the total killings took place in Latin America, where impunity from prosecution is the norm. This is the Faces of Assassination from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I am Siria Gastelum Felix, the Resilience Director at the GI. Throughout this series of podcasts, we'll be hearing stories of those who fought back against organized crime and speaking to those who are organizing the fight back today. And crucially, we will discuss how you can play a part in tackling this important issue by joining the Global Initiatives Assassination Witness Campaign. Joining me in the podcast today is Michelle Foley, Memorial Project Coordinator with Frontlines Defenders, Juan Papier, America's researcher with the organization Human Rights Watch, and Maureen Mayer, the vice president for programs and director for Mexican migrant rights at the Washington office on Latin America. Welcome everyone to the Faces of Assassination. Michelle Foley from Frontline Defenders, if I could start with you, who are human rights defenders? Why are they at risk of being targeted by organized crime?
1: So thanks for the question, Syria. Uh, Human rights defenders or HRDs are regular people who work non-violently for any or all of the human rights enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And because of their bravery and conviction to stand up for the rights of others, many of them are at risk they can be working on land rights, environmental rights, women's rights. They can be working against corruption and exposing links to criminal activities. And ultimately, because of their work, they face an array of risks, including losing their jobs and their livelihoods, restrictions on their movements, such as travel bans and house arrests, They can be charged with false accusations or defamed in, and targeted by smear campaigns in both traditional media and on social media platforms. They can receive threatening messages. They can be physically attacked. Their families can be threatened, abducted and attacked. They can be tortured disappeared and in the most extreme circumstances they can be killed. And while all human rights defenders can be subjected to these threats, it's important to mention that women human rights defenders and defenders working on LGBTI plus rights are also vulnerable to a second layer of misogynistic threats, attacks and and gender-based violence. And the, the project I coordinate, the HRD Memorial Project, is a collaboration between approximately 25 organizations, both national and international, working in the sphere uh in the human rights sphere and it's concerned with collating the global data on the killing of defenders since the un declaration on hrds was adopted in 1998 and this initiative was set up in order to give a true picture of the global scale of the killings of defenders worldwide, to illustrate the widespread impunity, facilitate national and international advocacy on the cases, and ultimately to commemorate and celebrate the lives and work of each of the defenders killed, ensuring that there's a record of their lives and legacies. So you ask, why are they targeted by organized crime? Well. There are many factors at play, some are more local, country-specific considerations, which I'm sure Juan and Maureen will speak to in the context of Colombia and, and in Mexico, and some are more regional or global phenomenon. But ultimately, I suppose, criminal groups target human rights defenders because their human rights work in areas such as migrant rights, land rights, indigenous people's rights, sex workers' rights, are often, often end up disrupting the economic interests of these criminal groups who are involved in narco-trafficking, human smuggling, illegal logging or resource extraction, and other illegal businesses. Thank you, Michelle. Now, Juan
0: Papier from Human Rights Watch, you have experience in working and analyzing human rights violations in Colombia. We know that Colombia has historically faced challenges posed by illicit economies, and it has been reportedly one of the most dangerous places for human rights defenders. From your experience, what are the patterns identified behind the killings of rights defenders in Colombia, and how organized crime has played a major role in this legal violence?
2: Thank you for the, the question. Um, the situation in Colombia regarding human rights defenders is extremely worrying. Since 2016, Over 400 human rights defenders have been murdered in Colombia, the highest number of any country in Latin America, according to OHCHR. Only this year, according again to OHCHR, 51 human rights defenders have been murdered and 62 cases are still being verified. Other entities, such as the Human Rights Ombudsperson's Office, has documented over 700 cases in the last four years. These cases occur in the vast majority in roughly 70% of them in rural areas. And um, in most of the cases, armed groups, including guerrillas, organized uh, crime, and groups that emerged from the FARC are believed to be responsible. Now, this is a multifaceted problem that has different uh, trends throughout Colombia. Many human rights defenders are killed for doing precisely their work. Some for opposing the presence of armed groups in their territories, others for reporting human rights abuses. But some human rights defenders are killed during armed groups' broader attacks against civilians. And these murders have exposed underreported patterns of violence and abuse in remote parts of Colombia, where law enforcement and judicial processes rarely reach. One key factor to understand the killing of human rights defenders in Colombia is the limited state presence in these mostly rural areas. This limited state presence means that social organizations, including what are called neighborhood action committees, Afro-Colombian community councils and indigenous groups often play prominent roles in performing tasks typically assigned to local government officials, such as protecting the population or promoting government plans. And this increases the visibility of social organizations leaders, including human rights defenders, exposing them to very serious risks. This includes the human rights defenders who have been promoting initiatives established under a 2016 peace accord with the FARC guerrillas. For example, many human rights defenders have been killed for supporting or participating in plans to replace coca crops, the raw material of cocaine, with food crops.
0: And listeners can hear the story of Edwin Dawa, the young Colombian indigenous rights community leader who was murdered in 2016 by fire dissidents for the very reason outlined by Juan. Thank you very much for your answer Juan. Maureen Mayer from the Washington office on of Latin America. If I can pose the same question to you, Mexico is reportedly one of the most dangerous countries in the world for individuals committed to fighting corruption and organized crime, unfortunately. Why are human rights defenders at high risk of being assassinated in Mexico, and how does it relate to this complex organized crime scenario in this country?
3: Yes, uh, thank you. Um, And I would say, you know, on the plus side, the the situation in Mexico is not as dire as as Colombia, as we've seen. Um, In 2019, Mexico did, did, though, rank fourth in the world for the, the killings of human rights defenders, with 33 human rights defenders killed throughout the year. By November of this year, we've already registered at least 18 human rights defenders um, that have been killed in, in Mexico. And as Michelle had, had mentioned, you know, attacks can be for multiple reasons, including those that are looking at or documenting or denouncing corruption and organized criminal activities, seeking truth and justice for human rights violations, and particularly defending environmental, territorial, and social rights in Mexico. If you look at who's responsible for these attacks, it's, it's sometimes very hard to pinpoint the, the perpetrators. The Mexican government reported in June of this year of the cases they are registering based on who they're protecting under their own protection mechanism, that 67% of the cases this year if, of attacks against human rights defenders, the perpetrator were Mexican government officials, public servants, which has increased um, from about 42% of last year. But this only tells part of the story, given the multiple cases of Mexican officials working in collusion with organized criminal groups, which can be at the local, state or federal level. Um, I think this dynamic has been very clear even recently if you look at the, the number of cases that are being investigated by U.S. officials of top Mexican security officials or former governors or attorney generals that are being investigated for their links to organized crime. And so I think there's, there's certainly that level of the gray area of how many of these cases the perpetrators are just public servants, organized criminal groups or others, or how much you see that blurring of, of the lines. I would say, though, that there are certain types of defenders that are at particular risk in Mexico. As I mentioned, environmental activists are probably at the top of that list. These are individuals that are openly opposing large-scale development projects and the illegal exploitation of natural resources, which made up about half of the human rights defenders who were killed last year were individuals involved in these activities. This is linked, again, to organized criminal groups who have also sought to expand their illicit activities beyond drug trafficking to the production and sale of natural resources, um, particularly as it means to, ex- to exert territorial control over parts of Mexico, and obviously for profit. There's a few cases that really illustrate that this year. In January, the environmental activist Homero Gomez Gonzalez, who worked for one of the butterfly reserves in Michoacan was killed with signs of torture, and I think it's believed that his killing was likely linked to his activity to combat illegal logging in the state of Michoacan, also linked to organized criminal activities in that state. Just four days after his death, another conservationist that worked with him was also found killed. Another category of individuals that are at risk are migrant shelter staff. I think in particular, because migrant shelters protect migrants themselves from kidnapping and other activities by organized criminal groups who extort migrants for profit, who seek to prey upon this population. So oftentimes, organized criminal groups see migrant shelters and their staff as impacting their profit because they are working to protect this population. The migrant shelter in northern Mexico in Saltillo, for example, has actually had at least 50 different um, security incidents in recent years. Some of them would appear linked to organized criminal activity. I think the last category that's important to highlight are family members of disappeared persons in Mexico who are defending their rights for truth and justice. Many family members have organized into collectives of families searching for justice for their loved ones, but also for for other cases. And they are also at extreme risk because many times these collectives of family members search for their loved ones on their own. They're out in the field. They're out in territories that are controlled by organized criminal groups. They're digging through areas that are uncovering things that some people might not want to see uncovered. And they carry out oftentimes their own investigations into what happened to their loved ones because the Mexican government has failed to act in these cases. And this work can be very deadly. In 2017, Uh, Miriam Rodriguez, who represented over 600 families of disappearance victims in the northern state of Tamaulipas, and became a defender herself after her daughter had been kidnapped and killed by the CETAS, one of Mexico's criminal organizations, and she was shot down in front of her house. So I think there's a real risk in this category because of the the risk the families themselves are taking out of desperation to know what happened to their loved ones.
0: Thank you, Maureen.
3: Michelle, you wanted to
1: respond I just wanted to echo what Maureen was saying in relation to the the sectors of human rights defence that are particularly affected. Juan and Maureen speaking there on Colombia and, and Mexico, and certainly from a global perspective, the, the vast majority of the killings are taking place in the context of, of land grabbing and, and land clearing for agribusiness and the exploration and exploitation of, of natural resources. So the defenders working on land, environmental and indigenous people's rights within this sphere are the, are the most vulnerable to, to violent attacks and killings from a, from a global outlook. And in the, last five, uh, in the last three years, for example, together with our partners in the Memorial Project, we've recorded the killing of over 240 defenders working on Indigenous peoples' rights, which is over a quarter of the overall figure in that three-year period. And this is particularly stark, I suppose, because Indigenous peoples only make up 5% of the global population. Similarly, Maureen was speaking about migrant rights, and, and it's definitely something that we would see both through the migration routes through Latin America and also those working along the North African coastline and the South, Southern European coastline. Are, they're extremely vulnerable to threats and attacks as there are you know, massive economic interests tied to human migration, which by and large is controlled by criminal groups and transnational gangs. And then I just wanted to make mention of um, sex worker rights defenders who conduct workshops and individual trainings for sex worker colleagues on human rights, labour rights, sexual health and also respond to emergencies when sex workers are attacked or abused and they're also vulnerable. In San Salvador, the the capital of El Salvador, for example, these defenders are working in areas controlled by rival gangs and people whose work necessitates that they cross between gang territories such as taxi drivers and delivery drivers and defenders working to support sex workers are regularly threatened and attacked and in some cases murdered by gangs for allegedly transferring information to rivals or undermining one group's sovereignty in a particular area. And lastly, I suppose it's also worth noting that defenders are often killed by hired assassins from criminal gangs. So while some of these criminals may not be the intellectual authors of the killings, They carry out the assassinations for monetary gain, which we assume further finances their criminal activities. As is the case of the journalist and human rights defender um, Daphne Aruana Galicia in Malta in 2017, and the criminals involved allegedly received 150,000 euros for carrying out the assassination.
0: Thank you, Michelle. Juan and Maureen, in both Colombia and Mexico, drug trafficking and the exploitation of natural resources have been main drivers of violence. Has COVID-19 impacted the situation for human rights defenders in Colombia and Mexico? And would you attribute this impact to the activity of organized crime? Juan, if I can start with you in Colombia?
2: There are some reports that indicate that the number of human rights defenders killed in Colombia has increased this year. We have yet to see whether that is confirmed, for example, by OHCHR, that uh, has the so-called official numbers according to the Colombian uh, government. And we also need to find uh, you know, strong evidence uh, linking this uh, increase to the COVID-19 pandemic. But we do know that armed groups have benefited in many ways from the COVID-19 pandemic. For example, in many areas of the countries, they have imposed their own rules to prevent the spread of, of the virus. Through pamphlets and WhatsApp messages, they have communicated a wide range of measures, such as curfews, lockdowns, restrictions of movement. And to enforce these rules, they have threatened, killed and attacked people, including human rights defenders who have reported these rules. One example is uh, Edison Leon Perez, a community leader from Putumayo, who was killed in June this year just a few days after he sent a letter to local authorities complaining that an armed group known as La Mafia was forcing local residents to organize checkpoints to question and screen people entering the area for for the symptoms of COVID-19.
0: Thank you, Juan. And Maureen, have you seen similar trends in Mexico?
3: You know, in Mexico, attacks and threats have continued during the pandemic, and, and some have been linked to organized crime. I think the most noteworthy case was um, in June when a feminist organization, Consorcio Oaxaca, found a bag of animal remains outside their office with a death threat to the organization and to uh, journalist, Soledad Jarkin. That was allegedly attributed to the uh, New Generation Jalisco cartel, a drug trafficking organization, and in that case, the threat was believed to have been linked to the work they're doing for justice for the femicide of Soledad's daughter back in 2018. And just to highlight, this sort of points to something that Michelle was talking about is that in cases, including you know, women's rights, women's rights defenders, or those that are looking for justice for femicide cases, so you know, women that are killed for gender reasons, there's a lot of risk involved because Oftentimes, aggressors can be linked to organized criminal groups, are members of these organizations. And so the implications for both the families of the victims and organizations working to defend the cases can be actually much more risky because you have um, that, that organized criminal element behind you that leads to threats. Or we've seen in, in cases, and there's a very noteworthy case of uh, Maricela Escobedo in northern Mexico, in the state of Chihuahua, who... You know, really pushed for the investigation of her daughter, who was killed by her boyfriend, who was working for a criminal organization, who also then suffered repercussions herself and, and security risks that eventually led to, to her murder because of who the perpetrators are in these cases. Now, going back to the pandemic, I think what we have seen beyond ongoing attacks, and thankfully, not very many registered deaths of human rights defenders in the recent months is how much the pandemic has impacted their ability to work in Mexico. And I think, you know, what Juan was saying about limiting of movement, that has been the case in Mexico. Some states have imposed different curfews and restrictions that certainly impact how human rights defenders can document cases Who has been probably more at risk in Mexico, actually healthcare workers. So people defending the right to health because of the backlash they've experienced in the context of the pandemic, oftentimes blamed themselves for, you know, bringing the pandemic to Mexico or infecting others. And I think the last is it's really important to look at how the pandemic has impacted the government's willingness or ability to protect individuals. We have seen at least a few cases where Mexican government officials have withdrawn protection measures. Um, There's a case in in Yucatan, a woman's rights defender, Clemencia Salas, had some of her protection measures withdrawn because the government argued that they needed those police resources to respond to, to COVID and not to protect her. In other cases, we have seen where because the government has shifted who is in charge of protection as a result of COVID, so police forces, for example, that that turnover means that you can have police protection but not people that are respecting the protocols that have been established between the people being protected, for example, migrant shelter, and the government in terms of how that protection should take place. So I think it has certainly impacted also that sense of safety that human rights defenders feel that they should have right to have, especially if they're under government protection, because the government is arguing they're they're deviating resources to respond to the pandemic.
0: You make some really good points there, Maureen. Thank you. And Michelle, from your experience, what successful measures have been implemented to protect human rights defenders from becoming potential hits by organized crime?
1: Thanks for the question. I suppose it's important to note that the killing of defenders, whether by state or non-state actors, including organized criminal groups, occurs against a backdrop of generalized hostility towards activism, and an accepted narrative that seeks to delegitimize the defenders and their work. And this is especially true in countries where the vast majority of the killings take place. So we're looking at Brazil, Colombia, Mexico, the Philippines, Guatemala, Honduras, India, leaders in many of these countries have invested in creating and compounding a, a popular narrative, I suppose, that human rights defenders are anti-development, they're anti-government, they're foreign-funded, they're, they're the puppets of foreign powers. And this narrative, I suppose, ultimately emboldens the perpetrators. So, when looking to identify positive developments, we're looking for developments that protect defenders and promote them as legitimate social actors. And and certainly there have been advances at both the international and the national levels in this regard. At the international level, I suppose, human rights defenders are acknowledged as, as legitimate actors. The importance of their work and the need to their need for their protection was recognised by the UN Declaration on HRDs in 1998, and subsequently reaffirmed by a resolution in 2009. And the Human Rights Commission established the mandate for the UN Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights Defenders in 2000. We also have inter-regional mechanisms like the Inter-American Commission, the African Commission, the Council of Europe, and their HRD mandates and. Again, at the international level in 2004, the EU produced a set of guidelines for HRDs, which instruct EU diplomatic missions on how to support human rights defenders. Then at the national level, several governments in countries where human rights defenders are particularly vulnerable, including Mexico and Colombia, have developed specific national mechanisms to protect defenders. So at that higher level, There is the international framework, and in some countries, there is a national framework. However, in reality, the international mechanisms and mandates, while they promote the legitimacy of defenders on the one hand, they are limited in their abilities to provide practical supports. And the national mechanisms, despite often being staffed by good people who work round the clock, they're hugely under-resourced in terms of personnel, underfunded by the states, oversubscribed by the many defenders in need of their supports. So, for example, in the Philippines, the the National Human Rights Commission, which is tasked with investigating the human rights abuses in respect to the infamous war on drugs, which includes the killing of defenders who were willfully red-tagged, was granted an annual budget of just $20 in 2017. Now, ultimately, that was overturned by the Senate, but it gives you an indication of the hostility towards defenders and the support mechanisms in some countries, even at the highest levels of government. So when we're looking at more practical measures and and practical successes, we need to look to civil society, I think. And that ranges from local human rights organizations and the networking of human rights defenders on the ground to regional networks and then international organizations and all have a, a vital role to play. Frontline defenders, for example, our primary focus is protecting human rights defenders at risk so that they can continue their work. So when a defender is, is targeted or threatened or attacked, frontline endeavours to work with the defender then to create a a tailored response to this and to try and increase their security. And this may include a protection grant to support a, a temporary relocation, for example, or it might be a grant to improve their physical security measures in their home or their office. And then when it comes to impact, we can look at the impact of protection grants. So in 2019, the evaluation reports received indicate that 99% of defenders reported improved security and 96 reported that they could continue or could return to work as a result of their grant. However, I think it's important to say that it's it's difficult to say definitively that any interventions ultimately prevent the escalation of a threat or an attack to a killing, as in reality, it's just a snapshot in time. But... As with listening to defenders, they tell us that they feel more secure and more supported and that they can continue their work, which is ultimately everyone's goal. Thank you for that answer,
0: Michelle. I want to dig more into the situations in both Mexico and Colombia. If I can turn to you, Maureen, it's true that in Mexico, many journalists and human rights defenders have faced other forms of aggression, such as death threats, harassment and violent attacks before eventually being killed. Are there any preventive mechanisms in place to address these cases and prevent future assassinations?
3: Yeah, since 2012, and actually at the the pushing and a lot of work done by human rights defenders and, and those at risk and journalists as well, really pushed the Mexican government to adopt what's known now as this national mechanism to protect human rights defenders and journalists. So it is a federal agency under the Minister of the Interior responsible for providing protection measures. To individuals at risk, that this could include security cameras, bulletproof vests, bodyguards for, for at risk individuals, sometimes relocation, so funding to relocate individuals within the country. And what we have seen in these eight years since it's been in place is the mechanism has certainly likely saved many lives but it continues to be plagued with a lack of human and financial resources that have limited its ability and its capacity to do its job and do it well. I think what Michelle just alluded to of this lack of resources really has hindered Mexico's efforts to provide adequate protection to people at risk. I would just say some quick examples on that. Since 2014, the the mechanism has had about 36 staff members. And at the time, they were overseeing the protection of around 100 journalists and human rights defenders, the Mexican government still has the same number of staff working in the mechanism today, even though they have now 1,300 beneficiaries. So you have multiple times the number of people under protection, but the same number of staff trying to administer those protection measures. What that means is that oftentimes risk analysis are not done in a timely manner, or they're not updated when they should. So there's a lot I think of just the human capacity really isn't there to to provide the protection that's needed. And the other is just obviously financial resources. The Mexican government in multiple occasions have faced budget cuts to the mechanism. Um, the, The fund that's for protection measures themselves runs out before the end of the year. And I think in the most dramatic measure in October of this year, the López Obrador administration, um, current Mexican government, actually eliminated the, the one of the funds, the fund that was meant to provide protection for human rights defenders in this big elimination of over 100 sort of trust funds that the government administered, which means now it's not clear how the Mexican government is going to come up with the money just for those basic parts of protecting people at risk. And and this means, you know, lack of more staff for the mechanism, but also basics like, when defender that's at risk, if their equipment breaks, the security camera breaks, it can take months for it to be replaced, if it's ever replaced at all. Or that if some bodyguard has been withdrawn, sometimes it can take a long time for that person to be replaced. So it's really putting a lot of risk for defenders. And I think just sort of as a reflection of what that looks like, it's also shown that between 2016 and 2018, so just where we have good data 56 journalists had attacks, even though they were under protection. And the other is these mechanisms are not sufficient. At least seven human rights defenders and journalists have actually been killed, even though they were under protection mechanism, Um, including, unfortunately, also some of these defenders' bodyguards. So people that were meant to protect them have also been at risk. So I think it shows that the mechanism is important, but it's certainly not one, it's not sufficient to protect people, and two, even the measures that they have are not being adequately implemented.
0: Thank you, Maureen, and Juan, in the case of Colombia, you mentioned the 2016 peace agreement between the Colombian government and the FARC. The 2016 peace agreement had provisions that address illegal economies and protected human rights defenders. So Juan, how do you see the implementation state of the agreement and what measures have been put in place by the government to protect human rights defenders in Colombia?
2: Government authorities in Colombia have, in in recent years, established uh, what I would say is a very complex web of plans, policies, and laws to protect human rights defenders and prevent abuses against them. Some of these plans are established under the 2016 uh, peace accord with the FARC. But overall, the, the implementation of these policies has been pro forma has been overly militarized, has normally been unsubstantive and has led to very, very limited impact in the ground. To its credit, the National Protection Unit, a unit established in 2011 to protect the people at risk, has granted individual protection measures to hundreds, really hundreds of human rights defenders in Colombia, providing cell phones, bulletproof beds and bodyguards to many of them. But the unit faces serious budgetary constraints and other plans, other more um, collective and comprehensive plans to protect human rights defenders in Colombia have faced very, very serious shortcomings. For example, the government announced in 2018 a plan to protect entire communities and rights groups at risk, but this plan has not been implemented. None of the pilot programs for this plan have been put in place as of now. Similarly, 2019 plan to protect civilians, including human rights defenders who participates in plan to replace coca crops with food has never been implemented. There is also a plan, a 2019 program to protect human rights defenders and other community leaders in what are termed neighborhood action committees. But the progress has been very, very limited and uh, it entails basically some uh, meetings with human rights defenders to discuss the design of this program in the future, but there has been no impact on the ground. Overall, I would say that the plans to protect human rights defenders have relied too heavily on uh, granting cell phones, granting bulletproof vests, but other plans to protect entire communities have been implemented in a very slow and inefficient way throughout Colombia.
0: Thank you, and it's interesting. And I think at the moment we can draw two conclusions in relation to what needs to be done to increase protection of human rights defenders. One, obviously, is the allocation of resources. And secondly, the development of plans that address the root causes of this violence. Michelle, in your experience as a program coordinator and as an advocate, what do you think can and should be done to protect these people?
1: Ultimately, the duty to to protect human rights defenders lies with states. So first and foremost, states need to publicly recognize the legitimacy of human rights defenders and their, their work. And in recent years, we've seen a rise of strongman politics. We've got Trump in the US, Bolsonaro in in Brazil, Modi in India, Erdogan in in Turkey, Putin in Russia, and all are attacking human rights defenders as anti-state and anti-development. And as I mentioned previously, this narrative really emboldens perpetrators and we've also seen a rise in, in hyper-capitalism and an ever-growing demand for natural resources, which pits the, the human rights defenders working on, on issues such as environmental rights and land rights and indigenous people's rights against powerful economic interests, both legitimate and, and criminal enterprises. And Coupled with this, we've seen the recent Mercosur deal, the the trade deal struck between the Mercosur countries and the EU, which, if and when it comes into being, will inevitably increase the demand from EU consumers on Mercosur goods and which can only lead to further destruction in the Amazon and further conflicts with Indigenous peoples, and ultimately further attacks and, and killings of Indigenous rights defenders. So firstly, I suppose states just need to clean up their act. <laughs> they need to regularly and, and publicly acknowledge defenders and the value of their work. They need to investigate the crimes against defenders, particularly the killings, and end and the impunity. Because as we've acknowledged, the levels of impunity are so high that perpetrators can almost be guaranteed to escape justice at this stage. And where national protection mechanisms exist, they need to be properly funded so that they can become more robust and more effective. And where they don't exist, they need to be introduced. For other actors in the area, foreign embassies on the ground need to act as allies for defenders, especially in countries where the government is is completely hostile. The the EU embassies already have a set of guidelines, so these need to be actively implemented and, and countries that don't have these guidelines need to adopt them. Companies also have a responsibility to respect defenders under the EU guiding principles on business and and human rights. So when threats or attacks linked to a company's activities or supply chains are highlighted to them, and these threats or attacks may well be linked to organized crime, companies need to take action in support of defenders, which I suppose too many companies have been too slow to do. And similarly, the, the international financial institutes, the IFIs who are financing these companies and the consumers who are, who are buying the goods have a responsibility to push for mandatory human rights due diligence in the supply chains. And then lastly, there's a need for more regulation of hate speech particularly by social media companies. They need to establish a more effective and timely response to requests to take down threatening posts and threatening messages that endanger the lives of defenders. And and they need to support defenders' efforts, I suppose, to de-escalate the levels of threat.
0: Thank you, Michelle. And Juan, you already touched upon this a little bit. But regarding public policies and also from a criminal justice perspective, What do you think needs to be done to improve the situation of human rights defenders in Colombia, where it's urgently needed?
2: So, uh, in recent years, authorities have passed uh, directives and created specialized units to prosecute killings of human rights defenders in Colombia. And I would say they have achieved significant progress compared to previous periods in Colombian history. There are roughly 60 convictions, 60 criminal convictions for cases of killings of human rights defenders since 2016. However, many investigations and prosecutions face very serious hurdles, especially those in regards to the intellectual authors behind these killings. Very, very few of them, perhaps only a handful, have been convicted. And there are serious problems in these investigations and in the capacity of judicial authorities in Colombia that cause these shortcomings. One issue is that there are too few prosecutors, judges, police and investigators in the areas, in the mostly rural areas, affected by these killings. Another important issue is that the government has failed to create a special team of judges that the, that the government announced in May 2019 to try killings of human rights defenders. This team of judges has never been created. Similarly, the special units in charge of prosecuting killings of human rights defenders have a very limited capacity. Some of them have even faced budget cuts in the last two or three years. Finally, a very important shortcoming is the lack of support, the lack of coordination, and often the delays from police officers and the military in supporting prosecutors and investigators, for example, when they're visiting crime scenes. This means that oftentimes when the investigators and prosecutors arrive, there is not enough evidence to carry out an investigation in accordance with international standards, and the um, prospects of achieving justice is very limited.
0: So there's an issue within the criminal justice system in Colombia and that is a big problem as, as we see. Thank you for that one. And Maureen, I believe that the Mexican case is somehow similar. What do you think is needed to improve the situation in Mexico?
3: I would divide this into like three different areas. One is the, the protection, another be prevention, and the other is investigation. I think on the protection side of things, there's certainly a need to ensure the funding and staffing for the mechanism. The Undersecretary for Human Rights in Mexico is very good at publicly phrasing the work of human rights defenders. That's important. But that hasn't yet translated into any other commitment by the Mexican government to really work to improve the mechanism itself. I think one key area is how do you develop mechanisms to protect people at risk in remote areas and areas controlled by organized crime? There was a case of Julian Carrillo, uh, like an indigenous human rights defender in Chihuahua who was killed back in October 2018. Living in an area with a very strong presence of organized criminal groups, the mechanism staff didn't actually go to his area to do a risk assessment because the risk for them was so great. The response to threats he was facing was so slow that in the end, it wasn't effective and he ended up getting killed. So certainly I need to develop better strategies to address the reality of defenders who are working in these very remote areas and areas that do have a strong presence of organized criminal groups. The Mexican states have a role to play. Mexico, as a federal government, has also state-level protection mechanisms, but only about a third of Mexican states actually have their own protection units. That needs to be stood up. States need to be under pressure themselves of what are you doing to protect your own population. The state of Chihuahua actually has probably the best experience developing a contingency plan to address how do you work to prevent future attacks against human rights defenders and journalists in that state. The UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights has done an assessment of the mechanism on how it could be improved, which particularly focuses on the fact that you need to have comprehensive prevention initiatives. And I think this is the key point, because any protection mechanism should be a band-aid to what is the real problem here. And I think both Michelle and Juan have alluded to both government discourse which is often not helpful and seeks to criminalize human rights defenders. There's actually several cases in Mexico where human rights defenders are being criminally investigated for their work. The current president, López Obrador, has made statements criticizing journalists and human rights defenders in his daily press conference that has led to future threats um, against individuals. So I think looking at how do you work at the government level to really raise the profile of human rights defenders and recognize their work as critical voices in looking at and providing oversight to government activities and in defending human rights. And the last is the most effective way to prevent future attacks is to investigate and sanction past crimes. And this isn't really happening in Mexico. I think, um, as there's been alluded to, impunity pretty much prevails for most cases. We did a work with Peace Brigades International looking at what has happened with investigations of human rights defenders and journalists and found that less than 1% of the cases actually led to any conviction either at the state or federal level in Mexico in the case of human rights defenders there is no protocol put in place to for prosecutors to, and how do you investigate a case involving human rights defenders which means many times a threat for example isn't investigated based on the work that individual was doing it's just like an isolated case which then prohibits or inhibits a full investigation to how much that attack that sometimes leads to, in the end, death, could be related to the type of work that person was doing. So there's really a need to have more resources in the prosecution of these cases and to put it as a priority. And I think what we've seen so far is you really have not had that level of commitment by the Mexican government. Thank you, Maureen. As we have heard today, The work of human
0: rights defenders is crucial to the survival of many communities. However, the risks they face are enormous and heightened if states do not ensure a safe environment for them to operate. International human rights law lays down obligations which states are bound to respect, and this certainly shall include the protection of the rights of the human rights defenders themselves, protecting their lives, their integrity is the duty of authorities and should be a great concern for the society at large. And then I'm afraid I'll have to end. Thank you all for taking part in the faces of assassination podcast.
3: Well, thanks for for having me and for doing this. I think it's a great podcast and and so just thank you all for 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 doing this this podcast and for your work as well.
1: I echo what, Maureen said, thanks for inviting the memorial project and and frontline to be part of it.
2: I will echo as well, um, but uh, thank you very much. It's been very interesting. Um, I look forward to listening to the podcast and uh, as I've listened to the other chapters, uh, and uh, and I've learned uh, quite a bit, so thank you.
0: It was our pleasure. Thank you to Michelle Foley, the Memorial Project Coordinator at Frontline Defenders, Juan Papier, the Americas Researcher at Human Rights Watch, and Maureen Mayer, the Vice President for Programs and Director for Mexico and Migrant Rights at the Washington Office on Latin America. That's it for today's episode of the Faces of Assassination podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Please go to our website, assassination.globalinitiative.net, subscribe to our newsletter in this podcast series, Help us remember the death anniversaries using our hashtag, #AssassinationWitness. You can also download a free ebook which profiles 50 victims of assassination who have yet to receive justice. You can hear the story of Edwin Dawa, the young indigenous community leader who was killed for daring to stand up to organized criminal groups. The best tribute you can pay to the courageous people who stood up to crime is to keep their memories alive and with our collective memory, shine a light into this darkness. This was the Faces of Assassination podcast. I am Siria Gastelum Félix. Thank you for listening.